there and welcome to the 2020 edition of the UAE Tech Podcast, a series of discussions on how technology is reshaping governance and economics in the United Arab Emirates. From our offices in Media City, Dubai, I'm John Lillywhite with Abu Abba Business. Right now, the power is is centralized, as we were just talking about in Web 2. And what's going to happen in Web 3 is that that power is going to get pushed out to the ends of the network, to the individual users. How are blockchain technology and the wider battle for internet freedom related? Why is a decentralized index the future of the web? What are walled gardens and why does the web 3.0 need to replace them? Finally, how can we code our values in cyberspace? To talk about these issues, Amy and Devin James from Alexandria Labs are here to discuss their pioneering work on the open index protocol and a more fun, sovereign, and creative internet. I asked Amy and Devon how they met and how an idea called the Decentralized Library of Alexandria on the blockchain first emerged. Devon and I met when I was in college through our mutual best friend, who then we went on to start our first business with. And that business is actually what led us to discovering discovering blockchain blockchain and understanding it it differently than I think we would have had we not. So that's really kind of where the idea for OIP came from, too, actually, um, is that we were in the midst of running that business and trying to change it to be more in line with our values. We had just kind of stumbled into it. And then we were like, oh, we're kind of uncomfortable with some of the things that we're doing. Manufacturing and, you know, using kind of materials that might have some toxicity and all kinds of different. The disposal, just like creating things that were in the landfill within six months and all of that kind of stuff. And so we were looking at how we could change things, started looking at payment processing as part of that process. And that's what ultimately led us to Bitcoin. And we were still looking at the time at changing our business in some sort of manufacturing way, because that's what we knew we were thinking miners, like make miners into something that could be actually sustainable. We were really concerned about that. Yeah, that miners were going to be thrown away every three to six months. And what if we can make something modular? And we were looking at that. But I was also like, I don't really want to be in the hardware business anymore. Hardware is really a challenging kind of business to be in. Mm -hmm. What if we were in software? Wouldn't that be better? She was just thinking this to herself. I was just thinking this. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then to prepare for a pitch to somebody about our long life miner idea, Devin read the Bitcoin white paper, just like I should just read this in advance. Like I just like, <laughs> like watched like, you know, explain it like I'm fives and all the videos that existed online in 2013 and, and, and thought I had a deep enough understanding uh, of Bitcoin at that point. And that morning I was just like, you know, what? I'm going to challenge myself and give this thing a read. And anyone that hasn't read it yet who thinks they understand Bitcoin, please give it a read. It's only nine pages and it's mind blowing how brilliant it is. Um, and I, I guess just like within a, a day or, or a few days, how it could help solve some of the problems that I happened to be aware of in the distribution 
area because my kind of past life before that was working in post-production in Hollywood. And I'd have, I'd had ex experiences where either a uh, professional product would, was running into distribution issues or, and, um, uh, you know, like some, some amateur thing that friends and I kind of made, um, was running into how could yeah. it reach the largest audience it, you know, possibly could and stuff like that. And so I was just aware of those for a few years and then read the Bitcoin white paper and realize this could solve a number of the technical issues involved here, especially combining it with something like BitTorrent technology. Yeah. So he read the, the paper. We canceled the pitch about the hardware product. And um, we almost immediately started in on what at the time we were calling the decentralized library of Alexandria. And I mean, he had the idea almost immediately, mm. or at least the basic parts of it. Yeah. It took quite yeah. a while to flesh out, obviously. Yeah. yeah, but it was our background, having worked in the entertainment industry before that, that I think helped kind of to connect all of those dots. Around a year later, Amy and James are on their way to connecting some of those dots. It's at a meeting of the Internet Archive that the inventor of the World Wide Web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, takes a liking first to their dog, and second to their project. It's from there that the current iteration of their work, the Open Index Protocol, was born. So Devin read the white paper, and I, I think it was the same night that he read it. He had the initial idea. Wow. Um, and we started working on it. And so His very first name was Archive Chain. It was Ryan that had the idea about Yeah, Syria. and one of the guys that was working on it in the very beginning with us um, had the idea for calling it the Decentralized Library of Alexandria, Ryan Taylor. And um, we started working on this project, and I guess we worked on it for just a little over a year. And then we presented at the, the Internet Archive held uh, the, f the first decentralized web summit, right? There's, we're not the only people that are working on these kinds of problems on this idea of building web three. And so it was like, okay, there's some, some problems with what's become of the web, what's happening with the web, how are we gonna fix them? How are we gonna use new technologies like blockchain to fix them? and kind of like, let's all get together to talk about who's working on which parts of the problem. And so we went and we presented and I did this like five minute lightning pitch and Sir Tim Berners-Lee who invented the World Wide Web was sitting in the front couple of rows. And in my the beginning lines of my pitch, I reference how in the beginning of the internet, we had walled gardens like AOL, Prodigy, CompuServe, and then it was HTTP that broke those walled gardens down and was this open specification that everybody used. And now today we have walled gardens like Netflix and YouTube and Spotify and Apple Music and Disney Plus and Apple Plus and everything else. All of the streaming services and how um, protocols like Open Index Protocol and IPFS and BitTorrent and Solid, yeah. Bitcoin and Solid and all of these protocols are going to tear those walled gardens down and give us a new set of open protocols that we build new things on. So and I actually just talked talk to him for about a minute in the pew beforehand. I was like, I was so excited to meet him. And I gave him my card and the card said the decentralized library of Alexandria. And he just like, he just kind of shrugged it off. He was more interested. We had our little dog with us and he was more interested in, in petting our dog. Oh, our and, dog is very and so cute. He gets, he, <laughs> he gets up and he, he gives, he, he stands in line and he says, this is absolutely fantastic. But I, I was talking to you in the pew and you said that it was what it was called. And I thought it was about library technology and, and it, the, the name just isn't right. 
you have to do something about the name. Yeah, yeah, we got a good um, finger wagging yeah. kind of, you know, from Sir Tim Berners-Lee about how our technology was great, but our name had to change. And so after that, I went home and I was like, all right, well, HTTP is what it sounds like. You know, it's hypertext transfer protocol. It's very simple in its name. It just says what it does. So why don't we name our specification in that same line of thinking? What do we call it? And thought about that for a long time and ultimately landed on open index protocol, which is hopefully exactly what it sounds like, right? It's an index, like a card catalog in a library. So it still has that root and the ancient and the um, the centralized library of Alexandria, but um, you know that it it is what it sounds like. It's an open index for anything. Yeah, and then we were able to take the name Alexandria that a lot of people really do associate with this concept, and they really are, get excited about it, and absorb that as our own product's name. Because by that point, we were coming to the realization that a really important part of solving this problem is really distinguishing between the underlying protocol that's doing the heavy list lifting of indexing and the new application layer above it that's just trying to create um, kind of a competitive marketplace of interfaces for that underlying index data. The analogy, the early web analogy of um, HTTP and Netscape works really well there, where Netscape, a lot of people thought of as the first big, you know, that, that was the, the product name associated with the rise of the web. Um, and it was the first web browser that was very popular and stuff like that. Um, and interestingly enough, the model is even similar because um, when they realized that they had to give their product away for free, they realized that they had to make their money by selling the service itself. And so as more people would use the web browser and thus have more demand for the web, they were actually, their, their business model was selling web servers to um, ISPs. So what was it about the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper and blockchain in particular that had captured their imagination? I think it was that it really convinced me that before that point, I didn't think it was actually possible for something that was truly decentralized to really work. Um, it needed to have some sort of central control just for the sake of administration and stuff like that. Um, and based on the, the, the recipe of incentives that Satoshi baked together, it's something that can and, uh, you know, for the past six years or really for 10 years now has really been proving can actually work because like the someone that wants to attack it, they're only going to help it. Um, someone that wants <laughs> to undermine it, they're only going to help it. It's like it's just it's just the most brilliant combination of incentives ever put together, in my opinion. In particular, Devin and Amy have been working on the blockchain when most of our peers have been working on cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. So what was that like? And how did it feel being the odd ones out? We were very much the black sheep at all of the conferences oh, and yeah. stuff like that, because in those early days, 2014, the industry was really focused on fintech and still is, you mm -hmm. know, hugely. It's, it was mostly Bitcoin maximalists. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those people didn't even believe in altcoins then. So um, it's changed a, a lot. A lot. Because then the industry accepted that altcoins are acceptable, but only one. Only Ethereum. If you're going to build anything, you have to build it on Ethereum because Ethereum is more advanced than and Satoshi's blockchain and a lot of a lot of things like that. And so we've been the black sheep kind of consistently for six years <laughs> saying, no, 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 we, we really do believe that this is the right. And ultimately, it keeps on 
uh, agreeing with us. It's on coming it, along and saying, yeah, you were right. Right, right, right. Devin, we've always joked that kind of Devin has the ability to see the future just in that he can anticipate things and he sees them or he expects them before they come. And so he would make arguments that people didn't have the experience to understand yet. And then a few years would roll out and then that would become clear. It was just like, you know, whereas before to have a conversation about it, you'd have to kind of argue your way through it. Now you're at a conference and having a chat and somebody's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's self-evident. It's yeah. just obvious. Yeah. It's like <laughs> really. But now in this moment in time, especially here in the States, we're seeing constant conversations about censorship mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and section 230 here for us is what they're talking about changing. But, um, it's it's just become this gigantic topic in the last six months, yeah, yeah, maybe a year. Easily. And whereas, you know, before I would have to convince people that it was even possible that the web would be censored. You know, my cousin had a like a, an, a quote expert come to his school and teach them that everything on the web was public and permanent. Right. Because they're trying to teach children to not put stupid things online <laughs> that could hurt right. them and that makes sense but the truth is that it's not it's 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 only it's public but it's public but it's not even but it's not permanent not permanent um the way the, th the way that things become permanent on the web right now via something like the streisand effect is just that individual people take it upon themselves to save that information and make sure that it doesn't die but it's not an a feature of the technology itself right. and plenty of stuff has been i mean it's it's scary how much um the parlance of 1984 has become so popular lately but it's scary but also it's crazy how much stuff is being memory old like effectively even despite um the fact that usually the more controversial something is the more likely a lot of people are going to go ahead and grab a hold of it and you'll get that streisand effect like amy's talking about there's still plenty of stuff that gets memory old constantly just Absolutely, just because of the size of the internet. Amy and Devon have a background in the creative industries, and it's clear from talking to them that in the blockchain, they see a solution for completely transforming creator-driven content on the internet. Right now, if I'm a creator making videos or music or anything like that, I have to publish my content to every different platform that I want to be on individually. After already doing the research to figure out all the good platforms that are out there. In sure. The first place. Right. Yep. And and when I do, I have to surrender my content to that platform. I, I accept whatever pricing and terms of service they dictate to me. And what Open Index Protocol does and what these new Web3 tools and specifications, other pieces of it also do is kind of... Um, Turn that on its head so that instead I as the creator retain sovereign control over my content and the terms of its distribution so I can set the pricing I can say which platforms can sell it on my behalf or if influencers can share it for me or any number of terms really it's a, a you can write literally anything you want we just have some sort of recommended paths but there's it's completely wide open mm -hmm. so um what's really powerful about that is that i can publish a single copy to something like the open index and then any platform can look at that copy of my content 
and display and sell it on my behalf according to that pricing and those distribution terms that I've set. So for me as a creator, it's going to reduce my administrative burden and it's going to increase the control that I have over um, over my business, really. You know, the creators aren't all the same. And the way that the platforms work right now preferences certain types of behavior. For instance, uh, YouTubers need to publish content really frequently, daily, kind of, to be favored by the algorithm, to be found and discovered, to be shared on the front page, all of that kind of stuff. They have to be extremely active on the platform. But there are some YouTubers who I adore their work, and they've done really important, powerful, educational things that aren't high output, right? They put a lot of time and research into creating their content, and so they they can't put something out every day or every week or whatever they need to to keep up with the demands of a platform like that. So even though their work is to me more valuable, and I would be willing to pay more money for it, or I would want to access it in a different way, there's competing on a playing field that's kind of stacked against them. And this changes that to put the creator at the center of it and empower them to kind of take control of their Plus, um, I don't know how long ago it was, I've heard so many YouTubers talking about this recently, maybe six months ago or a year ago or so, YouTube started really aggressively changing their algorithm so that it would uprank um, kind of mainstream news over over YouTube creators. It was it was a really weird shift that they made. They were like, well, I guess the, the cable airwaves have been, have been lost, everyone's shifted online, and so those centralized institutions are going to have to dominate here, and we're going to accommodate that. It was a really weird shift, for sure. Um, and a lot of YouTubers just can't compete with that. According to Amy and Devin, the future of the internet is decentralized. It doesn't exist with walled gardens. It's more creator-friendly. They call this new iteration of the internet Web 3.0. What does that mean? By walled gardens, I'm talking about what we would talk to, refer to as, as Web 2. Um, and that's the generation of the web that we're in right now. The first Web 1 was the very beginning of the web, um, the mid-90s mid to late 90s and it was when we were people were running their own servers at home they're running the web on their own computer at home to be part of the web it was when people were self-hosting their own websites and it It felt a lot more decentralized because it actually was for that reason it actually was Yeah, yeah that's right and then big services came along and did a more efficient job of providing bandwidth or or suggestion uh uh uh, things or, or whatever else and they the file supplanted storage it. and distribution mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff has been taken over by walled gardens or what you and i would think of as platforms as or monopolies like, big companies yeah. that are providing easy access to certain kinds of services and they're providing all of the rails and infrastructure to access that service most people particularly creators We'll probably agree with Amy and Devon that a more free internet, a web 3.0, sounds great. But are people really going to leave Netflix and YouTube and Facebook 
for decentralized platforms? Sir Tim had a fantastic response to being posed kind of that same question. Like, how are we going to solve this problem based on kind of how you solved this problem 20 years ago? And he, and he his I, quote I, I is, butcher it every time. You can make the walled gardens very, very sweet. But in the long run, the open jungle is always more appealing. Yeah, there you go. Something like, the, like the, that. Basically, the thinking there is that, sure, you control the walls, which means you can make the garden inside really, really nice. But in reality, an open jungle will win. It just will, plain and simple. And so it's, it's, it's more that, like, yes, these centralized services, because of the level of centralized control that they have, are able to offer really nice benefits right now, plain and simple. Um, the, the, the solution to this issue is that we need to disintermediate the parts that are expensive for them to do so that they can be done more broadly and make it easier to be an application layer. This, this, this struggle has been going on for a long, long time since the beginning, since the transition from web one to web two, there was Usenet and there was Reddit and Reddit ultimately won out because it was centralized and they could easily update things and keep it, keep the platform really easy, user-friendly to easy to use. Yeah. Whereas Usenet had to like have, uh, it was the opposite of at that the same time and yeah. permission to update things and it needed, so it needed a lot of maintenance at the protocol layer and that needed a lot of people to participate and thus it didn't win that fight. Um, but when you're thinking about it right now, if you're a content creator, like, of course, you need to build your audience. And so you need to go to where that audience is. So you need to be on Web2 right now. There's a reason we post all of our videos about these issues on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's where the audience is. There's two to three billion users on the web. And that's where they all are on Web2. But what's great is that the way that we're building Web3 is that it will still work with Web2. You can still access it from Web2. Mm -hmm. It just has the benefits of not being able to be controlled by those large corporations that are currently controlling Web2. Right. So somebody in your region who's struggling with just getting access can overcome that by now using open have protocols. to learn some new technical things but by running their own node and you know actually being part of web3 themselves they can get access to all of those kind of services that they're looking for in terms of payment processing and file storage and distribution in a peer-to-peer -peer way things that used to be entirely controlled by those those walled gardens and exactly. if they wanted to take it to the next level they could even host that node in a centralized way where other people could access it it with the same ease that they do on web web 2 right, right now in 1999 lawrence lessig famously wrote we can build or architect or code cyberspace to protect values we believe are fundamental or we can build or architect or code cyberspace to allow those values to disappear there is no middle ground, unquote. I asked Devin and Amy how Web 3.0 and theories of open search indexing are designed to counteract online censorship, shadow banning, and state-driven and user-driven disinformation. Basically, um, move the, the index of YouTube's videos into an open uh, space and then let multiple applications decide which ones fit for their particular uh, users and their particular use case. And then all of them can thrive 
the user the the content creators can benefit by being put in front of as many audiences would enjoy their content as much as possible the kind of content that some people find offensive will be will be hidden from them because they're using an interface that is that is making those decisions it's kind of like we it, it, we need to get to a point where people aren't being censored and you have an actual freedom of 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 speech and also people are able to have safe spaces for themselves right. those are those those can coexist right exactly so right now the power is is centralized as we were just talking about in web 2 and what's going to happen in web 3 is that that power is going to get pushed out to the ends of the network to the individual users where we can have sovereignty over our own personal data mm-hmm. and not be spied on and how and whether or not that is exchanged with companies um Mm -hmm. we're going to have sovereignty over the content that we create whether that's you know as an artist music videos that kind of thing writing comments all of that kind of stuff privacy over the things that we search for Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yep so web3 is really the the theme of web3 to me is sovereignty and the reason that it will work, um, I think, is that it it still allows you to have the convenience of Web two. Mm-hmm. That's really the key because with with Web one, when we had that that sovereignty, that dream that you were talking about, that they were they were thinking about in the beginning days of all of this freedom and that kind of individual control being out at the ends of the network, like it was. Um, it was really inconvenient as well and really difficult took a lot of work from individual to, users. Yeah. to participate in. You had to have a lot of specialized knowledge. Web 2 gave us the convenience and the, the you don't need that need for specialized knowledge anymore. <clears throat> and so in some ways, Web 3 is going to bring us back to the roots of, of what the web was intended to be. Yeah. Um, but it's also going to keep intact that ability to have convenience and that's really key most people think of search engines as just one thing and the truth is it's two distinct things there's one giant index uh, a map of all the information it has put it has found across the internet and what kind of terms it would associate with it and then the engine is the searching of that map google has a really good engine it's really really good Um, Part of the reason why it's really, really good is it also has a really, really good index. Both of those things are proprietary. Our our theory is that one of them should stay proprietary and the other should become public. That if the underlying, the very, very early days of the web, most search engines depended on people to actually um, share tags and suggest, like, here's a link to, to my website and this is how I would describe it. Um, and then, you know, and starting in the aughts or so, that just kind of fell by the wayside. And all the search engines just felt like, oh, we can map the Internet ourselves. We'll use, use these crawlers to map it ourselves and we'll decide how we should how we should describe these things. And then an, an industry built up of SEO of saying well, we can manipulate that a little bit. Um, but all of it was based on totally untransparent things. We can just look at the results of, of search. We don't really know what their index is. And so. Our, our, our general premise is if that index itself, which Amy mentioned earlier just briefly, the best way to think about that for anyone that remembers visiting libraries, um, 
is is the card catalog box at the front of the library. The library could be huge and have tens of thousands or millions of books, but it's useless to you to actually find something. Like you can wander up and down the aisles and read every single book and that's something. But most people, if they want to go into a big information store, they want to find something. So if they need to go to a particular book, they need to start with a small place that they can search first, the index, the card catalog, and figure out, okay, I want to read about um, whatever and look up that particular subject, find the author for it. Now I know, according to this particular mapping, I can find where it is in the library. That is the core thing that search engines are doing, is just associating links with the internet with something in their database that would result from a from a search. If that index itself became public, then we can see what really the map of the internet is, and then compare how search engines treat that information with each other to figure out well, who's censoring, who's biasing, who's, you know, putting their, their thumb on the scale. It just, everything becomes more transparent. So the, the conversation, the debate that's being had here in the States right now is about whether or not these companies that serve as the public, quote unquote, public square should function like public utilities. And the, the friction is that the companies that are providing us the public square, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, are private and they have a private infrastructure and a private index and they are the walled gardens that we've been talking about. And as private companies, they have the right to do what they want and to say that certain people can be on their platform or certain kinds of speech cannot be on their platform. and but because of Section 230, they can't be held civilly li- liable by the by the market. And yet there's this feeling that those companies should serve the role of public utilities mm-hmm. because they're, they're the public space. And so what we think is that those that there there's truth that we need a public utility that serves that function, but that it needs to happen in a way that it needs to happen through technology because mm-hmm. the technology can provide that infrastructure in a way that is um, protected by math mm-hmm. and is completely transparent so that audits can be done by really anyone to confirm that the system is behaving properly. Right. If something is supposed to be public, that really means that it's not controlled by any one institution. It's kind of controlled by the entire will of the public. And so we kind of have this thing that looks like the pub, like a public good, but in reality, it's controlled by its private ownership. It's clear the applications of blockchain go beyond finance or publishing. So how might the technology change government services and government operations, even the way we think about government in the future? Um, one experience that we've had um, that was really beneficial was we've, we've been working with um, another uh, OIP uh, a platform um, is a subsidiary of Overstock.com called Medici Land Governance. And they set out a couple of years ago to basically say, hey, um, there's a lot of different ways that blockchain can benefit civilization. We think one of the most significant is if it could store immutable records of, of, of land rights, basically, of who owns what property and what the terms of it are and stuff like that. Because generally, those those kind of records are kept in governments, but only because the assumption has been that that's the most public place to keep them. And really, all we really need to, to, to have proper um, property rights is that the most public place of, of, of keeping the records is kept and that those records are kept immutable. Um, and what's more public and immutable than a blockchain? Uh, and so 
and and in our case, we started then working um, with them to try to go after um, the state of Wyoming, who, who kind of stood up and said, "We really want to try out this blockchain stuff to see all the different ways that it could it could really benefit us." And one of the pilots that they were considering was putting their property records on it. And so we went out and we met with them, and the clerk was totally open-minded, and the entire legislature that was that was thinking about this stuff was totally open-minded, and everyone involved in the government on that side was really open-minded about it because they saw it as, um, this is something where we are responsible for this, but because humans make mistakes and stuff like that, we can lose records, and why don't we um, see if technology can benefit the, the people that we're serving and make it easier for us to do our jobs. And that has been a fantastic process. So one final question. Will an immutable ledger storing supply chain logistics, financial and digital transactions, really make the world more free? As in the Lawrence Lessig quotation, isn't it just as likely that the blockchain works as a tool for control? Government is still... It's imperfect. Mm-hmm in some ways, like a, like a private company mm-hmm. and that it can kind of do what it wants and that there's um, um, things that can happen behind the scenes that you can't necessarily see. And so if things like public records and financial information move on to, block, to a blockchain, there's the amount of transparency and trust is, is just so different. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. a whole different world. And that that transparency and trust um, mean, I think will mean a shift in that, the data and how that interacts with us in our lives and the kinds of costs and fraud and concern and all of those things associated with it will really change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially mentioning fraud. Um, uh, w- one of the biggest things that regulators and, and financial regulators are concerned with is reducing fraud because it's rampant in the fiat system. Um, and what they haven't yet accepted and what some of them are starting to is that that's literally the entire purpose behind the blockchain is to is to not just reduce, but make impossible, make fraud, make fraudulent use of this blockchain actually impossible. And so there's definitely... There's definitely a, a play back and forth there where they're like, no, you have to get, you know, if you watched any of the Congress people um, um, grilling um, the people that were introducing uh, Facebook's coin a while ago, it was really kind of entertaining because they're like, no, you have to protect your users' privacy. And then at the same time, they're saying, wait, but we're collecting this because of banking regulations that require us to, quote, know your customer and all that stuff. And in reality, those regulations the regulations themselves might be the problem because they're unnecessary if the network itself prevents fraud. And so it's more, I think, to some extent, some of the problem is just that government needs to realize that its own regulations kind of um, uh, badly solved problems before that that this technology more effectively solves. Mm -hmm. And so if they can get out of the way, we can have a better version of, of the solution. You know, but also at the same time, the thing you said about the governments being able to track whether you paid your your, your taxes or not, I think that's definitely going to happen for sure. Things like that are definitely going to happen. What do you think about the other part of his question about that there could be ways that it can make the government be more in control? Yeah, I don't see that one. I I, I see the concern for sure. and, and, And as we get our lives more and more online, I can see how that would be the conclusion. But I think part of the reason that's not going to happen is that half of... Um, the protocols that we're talking about when we talk about Web3, we've only really talked about the, the OIP and things that have to do with public data. But 
other protocols involved in this, like the one I mentioned that Sir Tim is behind solid, are all about protecting private data. And so by applications adopting both sides of that and kind of we have, we move into that, we shift into that new space of Web 3.0, we're not only going to have more transparency about the public services that we depend on, we're also going to have more ability to protect our own private data, not just from companies and mm -hmm. pirates and spies and stuff like that, but also governments. Absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. those come hand in hand. The future of blockchain technology is exciting, but also difficult to model. I ask Amy and Devin, what is next for the Open Index Protocol? I'm excited because um, we've only teased Alexandria, our application, our actual front end for years. We showed a, an early beta of it in 2015, and then we've worked with other partners of ours, and we've built out the spec, and we've worked on the tool that'll provide some some you know money on the back end and stuff like that. But we're going to be releasing Alexandria, our application, uh, later this year, and so I'm I'm really excited because I think that we've got some great approaches to how to deal with um, micropayments and how to deal with uh, censorship and 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 how to deal with a lot of these really hard issues. Um, and I'm excited to see, especially when the market is full of doubters saying these things can't be solved, to show them solutions and have them go, "Ooh, this is cool." <laughs> yeah, I think we're just at a really interesting moment in time in terms of the shift from physical distribution to digital distribution, really. I mean, mm -hmm. when's the last time anybody bought a physical, you know, a, a CD or a DVD, right? Well, right. long time ago for most of us. And yet, a lot of the revenue for the industry still comes from physical sales because of these problems that we're solving. Yeah. And so this transition in front of us, the next, I mean, the next 12 months for sure are going to be exciting because this is such a hot, hot topic right now. Um, but the next five years are going to just be absolutely thrilling yeah. watching this be adopted. Yeah. And I'm so excited to see what that moment will be that, 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 that the tipping point happens, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. what, what will it be? I don't know yet. I can't predict it, but I'm excited to see what it will be. So basically yeah. that there's a massive format shift on its way. Exactly. Yes. 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 Okay. So, so just before we go, where can, you know, people who are interested in the blockchain or Bitcoin or what's going on in the community in the States, where can they find you both and, and follow you? So we're both on Twitter. Um, I'm Devin R. James. And I'm Amy of Alexandria. And Open Index Protocol is on Twitter at Open Index Proto. Um, you can also go to openindexprotocol.com to read more about the spec itself. And, um, and Amy has a really great video series on YouTube on our Open Index Protocol channel called What Kind of Internet Do You Want? Yeah. Okay. We're excited to be getting that show going right now. Yeah. All right. Well, Amy and Devin, thanks so much for your time. Um, have a great day. And, um, you too. Thank you, John. You know, hopefully we can Thank do this you. at some point again in the future. Take care. Sounds great. Look That'll forward be great. To it. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks, John. Bye. Bye.